Y'all, I am so excited to bring you this Thanksgiving special with my hometown exoneree, Marty Tankleff. I am currently an adjunct professor at Georgetown University, where I teach an undergraduate class with my childhood friend that's nicknamed uh, Mickey and Exoneree. I am also an adjunct professor at Toro Law School, and I'm an attorney in New York State. At 6 a.m. on September 7th, 1988, 17-year-old high school senior Marty Tankleff found both of his parents murdered. This was a well-to-do neighborhood in Port Jefferson, Suffolk County, New York. His mother was stabbed to death. His father was severely beaten, and he died later in the hospital. Almost two years later, at 19, Marty was convicted and sentenced to 50 years to life in prison for the murder of his parents. He did 17 years behind bars. And then in 2007... December 21st, I learned that my convictions were reversed and I was going to be free in a few days. A judge ruled if the jury had heard the new evidence that was uncovered, they never would have convicted Marty. We'll get to that evidence and the crime after this. I grew up going to Port Jefferson High School, the same one that Marty did. I was actually born a year after this crime took place, and I graduated from high school the year Marty was released. So this story really kind of follows my life path, and I had always grown up hearing about Marty, and we'll get to that later. Marty is here with me now. So Marty, how many years are we coming up on that you have been free from prison? Uh, 13, I think 13. Yeah. I mean, there are days that I try not to even focus on that because I I always say that was another aspect of my life. Um, I'm trying to rebuild a future essentially, um, because what I believe is that when exonerees get out, it's almost like a rebirth for them. It's an opportunity for them to have a new life because so many years were just robbed from them. They were taken away from them. Uh, And for some of us, it was the best part of our lives that was just taken from us. I mean, we were kidnapped by the state, uh, deprived of freedom, opportunity for education, jobs, everything you can imagine. And some of us are trying to take advantage of the opportunities that have presented to us uh, and just go from there. Right. And and I really do want to get into that. But first, I wanted to ask you what kind of law you practice. Uh, so I work at a firm that does criminal defense, post-conviction, wrongful conviction work. Uh, and I, in the past few weeks, I've actually had the opportunity to go to court and work on individuals' cases. And, you know, I've had pretty good success on the three times I've actually appeared in court. I've kept the client out of prison for more time. Uh, You know, recently I stood next to somebody who potentially could have gone to prison that day. And somebody was talking to him and said, listen, if there's anybody you wanted standing next to you was Marty, because Marty knows what you were feeling that that day. 
And I tell it to a lot of people that, you know, if there's anybody who understands what it's like to be in a courtroom for whatever reason, it's me. I also, you know, through the Georgetown class, we have an opportunity to work on real cases where our students and myself and Mark Howard uh, try to exonerate people. And in our first semester, we were successful with the case of Valentino Dixon, who was a man who was in prison for 27 years in New York. Yeah. And I know that you are so busy. So I really just wanted to thank you for joining me. We were actually supposed to talk yesterday, but you got held up in court. Yeah. Well, you know what it is, is that since I just uh, was admitted earlier this year and then COVID hit, uh, it wasn't like I had a real opportunity to start going into court. So my partner, my boss that I work with, I kind of shadow him going to a lot of different courts now um, because I just need to kind of learn the ropes. Uh, So it's going to be interesting going forward, uh, especially, you know, any cases in Suffolk County, because the the feelings out there are quite unique, uh, depending on who you speak to. You mean their feelings towards you? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. As one of my lawyers said, is the further east you go, uh, the more they lack understanding of the facts of your case and hate you. <laughs> and one of the things I really wanted to ask you was, what is it like to start a career so late in life? It, it, it's very interesting. So I could tell you that when I was in law school, uh, I used to talk to my wife about how I felt like I was a loser, that here I was, you know, in my 40s, no savings, no defined career. And I was going to law school with kind of two groups of people. Uh, they were young people who were starting their first career, or some of them, this was their second or third career. And I remember my wife saying, you know, Marty, when you're out 10 or 11 years, let's have that conversation again. Mm-hmm. And about 10 or 11 years later, uh, we had that conversation, uh, and I was an adjunct professor at Georgetown, uh, adjunct professor at Toro Law School. I was an admitted attorney. I've been on you know, wrongful conviction task force. So you know, the conversation was, you know, look, you have a savings now, you have careers, you have credibility, you know, but it is challenging. And it's it's something that I consistently talk about with every exoneree they face this mm-hmm. is for some of us, you know, we come out after 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. How do you jump into a career very quickly? Um, it, it is something that I think we as a society kind of ignore. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was recently talking to somebody that if somebody is guilty, they go to prison, they get released on parole. The division of parole is obligated to try to help you find housing, jobs, that sort of thing. If you're exonerated, there really is no governmental function that's there to help you. Wow. Yeah. I think that's something some people don't really think about, you know, particularly, I think, as you know, you know, I've gotten close to Ronnie Long, who did 44 years, he's 63. You know, when you get out at 63, um, I don't even know if you can build a career there. Um, And with Ronnie, you know, he's his difficulty is now, as you know, lawsuits take a while. How is he supposed to have some sort of income at at 63 years old when when, quote, normal people are retiring? Right. Uh, 
So that's that's a second issue that I've spoken about. Two is that, you know, we don't have what I would call kind of almost an economic, uh, you know, assessment for when people get out that we can help them get on their feet, right? You know, there should be some uniform kind of situation throughout the country um, that when an exoneree gets out, the government provides them with some minimum standards. Uh, and then, you know, above and beyond that, they can sue. Uh, why should exonerees who have been, in many ways, kidnapped mm-hmm. by the state, uh, deprived of the opportunity for jobs and careers and, you know, the natural maturation process, that all of a sudden you get out, there's nothing. Uh, and it, it's something that I have said time and time again that I wish some of the billionaires in America would give some money and, and we could create a fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we don't even think about some of the simple things like going to DMV. You know, when I got out and I went to DMV, they wanted six forms of identification. I walked in with, I think, a birth certificate a hotshot driver's license, a social security card, and a newspaper article at my picture. And I said, what, what, you know, considering where I was, what else do you want me to bring in? I was like, you know, room and board was compliments of the state. I said, you know, my paychecks were paid by the state. Like, how do I have six forms of ID? And, you know, later on, I found out that a lot of exonerees went through that too, where, you know, trying to establish who they were was very difficult. So I want to talk about getting compensation because I know that across the U.S. it's it's different. So some people get it much faster than than others. Because in some states there are uh, statutes um, that getting compensated is much easier, even though it's a much lower number. In other states, to get compensated, it could take over a decade. So what so, are some of those states? I, I don't know the states offhand that kind of have the statutes, but New York is one of the states where I am. There is no automatic compensation statute. You actually have to sue in state court and federal court. And tragically, you actually have to reprove your innocence oh. if you've already proven your innocence in criminal court. Wow. And I think that is probably some of the most psychologically damaging aspects of our criminal justice system for exonerees that, you know, we, we are tortured by being in prison, we get exonerated, and then when we try to sue for some financial compensation, we're in many ways reliving the nightmares of what we went through, and we're also learning about so much evidence that had been withheld from the, by the government, or we're learning about new technology or we're learning about witnesses that were manipulated by law enforcement to testify falsely. Uh, During my post-conviction proceeding, witnesses had called the DA's office to try to give information, and they were like, we don't care what you have to say. And it's tragic. It's tragic that evidence and witnesses can come forward, provide information that can help somebody, and prosecutors just ignore it, and the police just ignore it. And they do it intentionally. And as a matter of fact, I think it was two days ago, a new witness came forward and said, Marty, I saw something the morning of September 7th. 
I went to law enforcement. Did you ever know this? And it was like, holy shit, no. And we, we've come to realize that, you know, our convictions really weren't wrongful convictions. They were intentional convictions mm -hmm. because the conduct of the government by law enforcement was intentional. It, it wasn't just a mistake. Uh, when you have people that intentionally withhold evidence, intentionally manipulate witnesses, that's not wrongful. That's not an accident. Um, and there are times that I think we generally say they're wrongful convictions because trying to help people understand what an intentional conviction is, is difficult. But when you think about all of the very specific and concentrated acts that goes into when somebody who's innocent is convicted, it's not wrongful, it's intentional. Yeah. And you and I kind of briefly touched on this in our emails back and forth. And I mentioned to you, you know, what can be done about that? I mean, I see this in almost every single case that I cover where it is known that this person is innocent or there's evidence pointing away from them. And yet it's either withheld, buried. Um, in one instance, the prosecutor didn't even know about it because the police hid it from the prosecutor. So you know, what can be done when there is this kind of corruption? And tragically, there's something called absolute immunity or qualified immunity. Essentially, it means they're protected. It's a section of law that basically means that they can't be held accountable for the wrongs they did during their employment. <laughs> it's uh, laughable. It is. And there is a movement to end qualified immunity. Um, I just want to touch on that real quick for listeners, because listeners always, always ask, you know, what can be done? And I want to bring up that I make a point in each episode to not just say the prosecutor, the officer, I name these people because if they are still around, if on the off chance they listen, I want them to know that we know who they are. Um, and if there ever is a time that they can be held accountable, I, I've put their names out there. In, in my case, you know, the, the prosecutor presented to the jury that a knife that was sitting next to a watermelon uh, was the murder weapon. And during the civil rights case, we deposed the medical examiner. And he said, I told them 25 years ago before the trial, it wasn't the murder weapon. It's like. So for 25 years, the prosecution was aware that the murder weapon or the, the, the knife that you're claiming and you told the jury was the murder weapon could not have been the murder weapon. It's, it's just mind boggling that they can get away with things like that. Well, it's mind boggling they get away with it, but it's also mind boggling that there are people out there this evil um, that would put away a child wrongfully who's grieving his parents. I mean, that is, you know, besides getting away with it, I mean, it is, it is evil and it is disgusting and that it's, it's not human. I, I, I would wholeheartedly agree with everything you just said. For me, it, it really has to start with a retraining and, a, and almost a, a change of mindset uh, you know, the prosecutor's duty is to seek justice, not merely convictions, which stems back to, I think it's a 1935 case, United States versus Berger. Uh, unfortunately, though, so many prosecutors have had the mindset, it's like convict at all costs. You have other issues, too, is that when 
you have prosecutors and police who've worked together for a long time there's an inherent trust or a reliance on them that when a detective comes to a prosecutor says, listen i have this witness this is what the witness said quite often the prosecutor doesn't challenge that they almost just accept it because they trust the cop then we've had over years faulty scientific evidence um, we also have at times when I think people don't use their common sense that something is absolutely wrong. When you're talking about someone's life and liberty, using common sense and saying, you know what, maybe we should slow this down a little bit, reinvestigate it just to make sure we have it right. What's the harm in that? Mm-hmm. So so I want to... I wanna tell you about something I just encountered last night. I was in a back and forth email, um, doing my due diligence, asking the district attorney in one of these cases that I know you're very familiar with John Brookins, because of course you guys did cover him in making an exoneree and worked on his case. So in his case, very simple, he's requesting DNA testing that would very likely exonerate him. And so the argument coming from the district attorney's office right now, they just denied his petition. And their argument is on two grounds. One, a technicality that um, the timeliness of this, he should have done this, you know, years ago, just a technicality. And the other one, they're saying that the DNA even if Sharon Ginsburg's DNA was on it, who everyone believes is the actual perpetrator of the murder of her mother, um, even if it's on it, that would just show a conspiracy and it's not going to exonerate John. So I emailed the DA's office, and some of this is probably going to be not shocking to you at all. I emailed the DA's office saying, um, hello, you know, can you tell me why you are refusing to release the DNA. They wrote back, you know, it's all public record. We wrote all of this. And I said, hi, yes, I I understand. Um, This is coming from the chief of appeals. Jill Graziano is writing back to me from the DA's office. And I said, I understand. I've read the documents, but I am confused. And I again ask, why wouldn't you want the DNA tested if there is another person out there who could be involved in this crime? you know, who could be out there committing more harm in society. And they wrote back that they absolutely believe John is guilty. And I said, I understand that. But again, if you're asserting a conspiracy, I'm still not understanding why you wouldn't test the DNA to then try that person who you are again alleging if their DNA is there as part of this. And she just wrote back, I'm not going to relitigate this to you. You know, our pleadings are what they are, and it's up to the courts. I think I was asking some very legitimate questions in this case. Why, again, if you are asserting there is someone else that could be involved in this crime, you're not going to test the DNA? It's very, um, to me, this was a little shocking that she wouldn't even answer. You know, of course, they they don't want to have to me, they don't want to have an overturned conviction because they know, I think they know John didn't do this. So, I mean, what do you have to say about what she's, what she's saying to me that she won't even give me an answer to my question? Uh, number one, it's not shocking that they won't answer the question directly. Uh, I've seen it time and time again, where prosecutors throughout the country oppose DNA testing, even when there's no cost to them, even when the individuals who are making the application are saying, listen, we'll pay for the test. Let's just run the test. Let's see where it goes. Mm -hmm. And I think we're we're at a time and a place in our society 
and we understand the value of DNA, prosecutors use it to convict people, they use it to eliminate people. Why shouldn't we use it to help exonerate people? Because if you look at some of the statistics from the Innocence Project, in I forget what the percentage is, but in a significant portion of exonerations, the DNA was able to be matched to someone else who was already in prison, uh, who had committed additional crimes, or they were able to identify who the suspect was. Right. Right. And in this case, they're saying there could even, their argument is this, there could potentially be another person. So to me, it's just dumbfounding why you wouldn't test it. I mean, you know, it's just, it's um, incredible. I mean, mean, here's one of the major problems with this is that when you incarcerate an innocent person, the government has victimized that individual, their family, their friends, and society. Because when you incarcerate an innocent person, you allow the guilty parties to remain free and commit additional crimes in your own community. And that's something that prosecutors never want to talk about. Because, you know, that just shows the community how dangerous their decisions are, because it just goes that they didn't do their jobs in the very beginning. And because they didn't do their jobs, there was either a rush to judgment or something worse than that, that criminals were allowed to remain free, committing additional crimes, including rape, robbery and murder. So they have become they've created, you know, more victims in our society, which is something that. I think nobody really wants to talk about, but that's the reality of what happens. Hi, I'm Alexa Doubt with The Porchlight Project, a new nonprofit dedicated to funding DNA testing and genetic genealogy for cold cases in the state of Ohio. For our first case, we assisted the Cuyahoga Falls Police Department funding new DNA tests on evidence from the 1987 unsolved murder of 17-year-old Barbara Blatnick. That information was given to expert genealogists who traced the genetic markers to a man named James Zastonic, who was arrested in May of 2020 and charged with Barb's murder. Our goal at the Porchlight Project is to entirely fund three to four cold case investigations every year. Each new case costs about $6,000 to complete, which is a small price to pay for closure. The Porchlight Project relies on generous donations from the public. Even $5 can help us solve a murder. For more information on how to help, please visit porchlightonline.org. So I, I do want to get to your case because it does involve so much of this. And as you said, the murder of your parents is currently uh, unsolved. So can you walk us through, you know, what what happened in your case? Um, and I just want to say you're my hometown exoneree. I grew up um, hearing about you. And of course, this was, you know, the 90s where people were way less um, knowledgeable about wrongful convictions. So growing up, you know, in Port Jeff High School, Port Jeff Middle School, you were kind of like the local boogeyman. Um, in a way, you know, we'd hear these, these stories. Uh, you know, I remember one specific teacher, a social studies teacher who I'm sure you know who I'm talking about, who would often tell your story. And it was like this boogeyman story about this, um, you know, what we heard. And of course you're going to correct me, please. You know, this spoiled rich kid who murdered his parents because they wouldn't let him get a new car or whatever the, the instance was. Um, so that's how I grew up hearing about you. And I want to hear from you the truth. 
Well, I mean, you have to understand, too, is that in the 80s and I guess early 90s, uh, there, there are two kind of concepts that I think society had a very difficult time either understanding or believing. Number one is that innocent people uh, are charged, convicted, and go to prison. Uh, and number two, innocent people will falsely confess. Two very huge concepts that, you know, if you describe that today, I don't think there would be any question that anybody who has some familiarity with the criminal justice system would understand innocent people absolutely do go to prison and innocent people absolutely falsely confess to crimes they didn't commit. Um, But, you know, it took a very long time for people to understand those two things. Uh, And that's probably why the whole boogeyman uh, story came about, because in the 80s, uh, Suffolk County uh, was considered the wild, wild west of law enforcement, and they were able to control the media or their stories. And in my case, the prosecution's theory was spoiled rich kid committed these murders because his parents weren't giving him enough. And that was the story that they spun very early on to infect the community, the society. Uh, with this kind of twisted story. And by the time I went to trial, every one of those theories was essentially disproven. Um, And people couldn't understand that, but it got to the point where at the very end of the case, the prosecutor essentially had to concede, we don't have to prove motive or we don't, you know, we don't know a motive here. And it almost got worse because years after the fact, uh, the lead detective in the case, K. James McCready, was interviewed by somebody, and he was asked, you know, he was asked, you know, Detective McCready, you've always said Marty did this for money, but were you even familiar with his parents' wills? And he was like, no, I, you know, I don't know what they said. And the woman reporter said he wasn't going to benefit financially until he was 25. What was he supposed to do from 17 to 25? And, you know, this is what happens in a lot of these stories is that the prosecution, the police kind of take control and it's like a snowball. They start pushing this snowball forward and there's no stopping it. And in my case, you know, if you talk, go from September 7th, where I'm interrogated by law enforcement, hidden from family, hidden from friends, uh, isolated uh, you know, various forms of interrogation are used from psychological to physical, uh, absolutely no form of electronic recording of the interrogation took place, even though they had the technology. And by the end of the day, you know, law enforcement said, I confessed. And then within hours or days, my father's business partner, who owed my father over a half a million dollars. Uh, whose son was a drug dealer uh, who had enforcers to commit violent acts, cleaned out a joint bank account, changed his appearance, faked his death, told his family he'd be swimming with the fish, uh, fled from New York to New Jersey, from New Jersey to California, and he had five different aliases. Uh, And everybody, this happened probably a week after I was arrested. My father was still alive, uh, and you know, everybody thought that this was a kind of a, 
a bright light because from day one, me, my family, friends all said, look at Stuerman. Stuerman had threatened Marty's, you know, Marty's dad. There was this, all this money owed. Uh, and, you know, Stuerman was the one person who would benefit financially. The public needs to know what happened in my case. They do. Uh, my family does. And that's the one thing I think people also don't understand, too, is that this wasn't a case where my family was against me. I mean, my mother's sisters and their family supported me. My father's brother and his family supported me. Like, if they all believe in Marty and they know who Marty is, something's wrong here. Yeah, see, that's something that growing up I never heard, you know, and again, I'm in high school, I'm a, I'm a kid, um, you know, we just, again, it was just the boogeyman story, the kid, one kid in my class moved into your house, um, his family lived there, and it was always the murder house, um, but so we didn't hear or were told or know that your family supported you, um, and that's, I mean, that that is a huge, that should have been a huge flag to mm-hmm. the prosecutors. I mean, and the only person who ended up not supporting me was my half-sister, who benefited financially from my conviction, who ended up going into business with K. James McCready, the lead detective. Oh, my gosh. You know, so if you want to understand kind of the, the, the evilness or the sinisterness of this, you think about, you know, who benefits financially from my conviction? Jerry Stewartman benefited financially. My half-sister benefited financially. McCready benefits financially. As the evidence would come out later on, uh, Jerry Stewman and the lead detective, uh, K. James McCready, had a relationship. And there is evidence that came out through testimony um, that McCready was paid a certain amount of money to keep Stewman's name out of it. Your case is one that's, you know, not that all of these are not horrendous and heinous, but I mean, you're convicted of murdering your parents. So not only are you in prison, your your parents are dead. You're there for this. I mean, what is that like? And, and then not only, you know, they tell you that your father is still alive and is saying you did this, which is a whole other, you know, mind fuck to you as, as a young 17-year-old person. I mean, what is all of this? What is that like? You can't even fathom it. It's, as one of my lawyers described one time, he goes, imagine you standing on the ground and you having this belief that the ground is solid and then the ground just crumbles underneath of you and you just keep falling. That's what it kind of felt like, that this was not a reality. This couldn't be real. Um, You know, you're supposed to have this trust or faith in law enforcement, and you come to realize they're not there to help you. They're there to hurt you. Um, And, you know, since then, I've learned that, you know, that that especially Suffolk County, their way of solving cases was interrogations, getting confessions, and then kind of building a case around that confession and trying to convince people that they were right. Uh, But in my case, they weren't. So let's talk about the interrogation. I mean, so from my understanding, you know, growing up, they tell you your dad is still alive and he said you did it. 
And then you, a young 17 year old, I remember, I think you were partying that night and they said, you know, you, you were so messed up. You didn't really remember. So you you said, okay, if my dad said I did it, then I, then I did it. So the, the way the interrogation happened was, is that whenever I told the truth, it wasn't good for them. So they would go down the path of what I would say suggest, and I would do regurgitation. So they would say, you know, Marty, you know, maybe you blacked out and you did the crime. My answer was, I didn't do the crime and I didn't black out. And they're like, Marty, just tell us you blacked out. You know, well, this will move forward. And, you know, every step of the way, almost every element of the interrogation just followed that. You know, they would suggest, well, you know, maybe you did this or maybe you did that. And I said, no, I didn't. Um, And they would say, well, just Marty, just tell us you did. And, you know, that's how the interrogation went. and you know, at some point, they did kind of uh, McCready did a fake phone call where he left the interrogation room. He testified that he created this fake phone call. He came back in and he said that, you know, they pumped my father full of adrenaline and my father identified me as being the person who attacked him. And for somebody who is in probably the most traumatic confusing state possible to hear that somebody you love trust and never lied to you is saying you did this you almost start to doubt yourself a reality and you know for me i knew i didn't do anything but the cops are saying i did then they're coming in and saying my father said i did you start to doubt the reality of the whole situation Um, and the environment And the reality almost changes instantly because there were two instances that as soon as I was away from the cops, I was like, I was telling people I didn't do anything. And if they say I did something, it's because they made me. Um, And we see that consistently with people who have been accused of making false confessions that as soon as they're away from the confines or the interrogation, you know, they start saying, listen, the cops made me say this. I didn't say this. Uh, you know, in my case, I've always said, had that interrogation be recorded, I probably would have never served a day in prison. So I, w- I want to ask you, you know, how did you ever, have you ever, and what was grieving for your parents like? I mean, 17 years old, how old were you when you actually were convicted? 19. 19. June 28th, 1990, I was found guilty. Uh, but I wasn't sentenced till I think it was October 4th or 5th of that year because there were some legal and factual issues that arose. Uh, the grieving process, I think, is still going on because, to me, the people who are responsible for my parents' murders um, are free or they're deceased. You know, for me, there's very few people that can be held accountable Um, But there's still a body of evidence and witnesses that are out there. So where is your case now? I mean, are you still uh, seeking to get any kind of justice that you can? Uh, We are still investigating. I'm working for the last seven years. I've been working with a private investigator by the name of Adam Deutsch, who has uncovered a wealth of new witnesses. Uh, There's also a lot of the new forensic evidence that we were able to produce during the civil rights case. And I'm hopeful that if we make a request to the current 
sitting Suffolk County District Attorney for him to reinvestigate the case, that they will conduct a full and fair investigation. Uh, if there are charges that can be brought against individuals, which I know there can be, uh, that he'll pursue it. But at a minimum, he should at least issue a report that you know outlines everything we've discovered that shows uh, who the guilty parties are, Stewartman, Ken, Creedon, Harris, and others, uh, because I think th the world needs to really understand that what happened to me should never have happened, and it happens to too many people. And... It also needs to happen because there are the naysayers out there. I mean, it is still incredible. Like I, the very few friends and people that I'm still in touch with on Long Island, um, you know, when I said like, oh my gosh, I'm speaking to Marty Tinkliffe. I'm so excited to, you know, hear his side and, you know, he was exonerated. People were like, what? He was exonerated. I, he did it. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And that goes back to what you were saying at the beginning, which I want to follow up on is when you have cases out in Suffolk County, um, and you said people's perceptions of you. Um, tell me about that. I mean, still to this day, people believe that you were guilty. And, and so often it's because they just don't want to accept, you know, that they're that the good old boys of Suffolk County, uh, you know, the old regime were wrong. Because if they admit they were wrong in my case, how many other cases were they wrong in? And you have to understand some of the good old boys, you know, the prosecutors and the cops that were involved are still in Suffolk County. Uh, the prosecutor who tried my case is a sitting judge. Uh, the judge who denied my post-conviction motion is a sitting judge. The assistant district attorney who is in the appeals unit who fought to keep me in prison is a judge in Suffolk County. Uh, you know, some of the other assistant DAs who were in the Homicide Bureau are you know, either still in the DA's office or are judges now. Uh, and you have to understand, you know, for them to admit they were wrong, you know, they almost have to admit that their fellow brethren who, you know, the, the judge is sitting on the bench, that he was wrong. Uh, and that's difficult for people to do. Uh, it's difficult for people to acknowledge that the criminal justice system was wrong, or prosecutors were wrong, or police were wrong. Uh, but if you follow the evidence, you follow the witnesses, uh, you can follow the truth, which is, I was innocent, I've always been innocent, and the guilty parties remain free, were protected by law enforcement, uh, and while I was languishing in prison, they were living free, uh, victimizing other people, committing additional crimes. What did that feel like that you're languishing in prison, your your parents are dead, and the people who did this are out there swimming in the ocean? It tears at your heart and soul every day that here you are, you know, living in a six by nine cell, uh, surrounded by concrete and steel, never knowing if that cell door is going to open, you're going to get to come out today, never knowing when you're going to be free. Because for me, I didn't live in prison. I was temporarily residing because I always had the belief and faith that the system would eventually work and it couldn't continue to incarcerate an innocent person. And if it did, the system was a complete failure. 
Also, there was a family member who said, Marty, he goes, there's going to come a point where somebody's going to die or somebody's going to get arrested. They're going to want to make a deal and they're going to give information up and you're going to be free. Uh, and what's interesting about that is in the past few years, when some people have passed away, individuals have come forward with new information and they've said, we didn't come forward because we were afraid of that person harming us or harming our family. So is there any kind of recourse for the folks that you mentioned, these judges, you know, prosecutors who are still alive today that wrongfully incarcerated you? Um, Some people have said, Marty, you know, for you, the day of justice in many ways was, you know, when McCready was being deposed, I got to sit in the room, kind of look at him and almost confront him and say, you know, you put me in prison, you tried to kill me, but guess what? I survived and I'm here. Uh, You know, me being an attorney, uh, going out to Suffolk County and eventually possibly having to appear before certain judges. Uh, you know, I don't think we'll ever be able to hear the case, but me just being able to stand up and say I'm the attorney for the defendant and asking the judge to recuse themselves because of bias or prior history, uh, in some ways is almost cathartic or, or therapeutic in the sense that, you know, you put me in prison, you know, by you putting me in prison, you tried to kill me, but I survived and here I stand. So where can people find out about you and the things you do now? So there, there was a book that was written on my case. It's called The Criminal Injustice. It's a great source of information for people who want to know things about the case. Um, you know, while I was in prison, the individuals who worked on my case set up a website, martytankoff.org, that you can go there. You can read a lot of the legal filings. There's makingexonderie.com, which is the website about our Georgetown class. I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, so people can follow me uh, because I do a lot of sharing of criminal justice issues because I think one of the ways we can make a difference is sharing information. It's educating the public. Uh, so often, you know, prosecutors think that by us educating the public, we're tampering with the jury pool. And it's the complete opposite. We're educating people because we need the truth to get out there. We need people to understand what the criminal justice system is all about, uh, including the highs, the lows, the good and the bad. Uh, And if we don't educate people, we are going to suffer with imprisoning and convicting innocent people. So speaking of books, I thought you had a book. You don't. But um, do you plan to write a book? You know, I've thought about it. And, you know, for me, one of the issues is the story's not over. Um, it, it would definitely be a work in progress. Uh, but, you know, for me right now, I'm, I'm focusing on trying to get my career established a little bit, um, teaching and trying to help others. Uh, you know, while writing a book would be great, cause I think people uh, would benefit from it. I think I can help more people by teaching the class at Georgetown, uh, walking into court and having a better understanding of what defendants are going through. I can't even imagine how happy they would be to have you as their defense attorney. Um, That's amazing. It's like what Valentino Dixon said. He goes, you know, he goes, when Marty was involved, he goes, it was a sense of calm because it's somebody who was in my shoes. 
and he knows what I'm going through, and he knows, you know, what we have to go through to get that end result, which we did in his case. You know, we're at a point in our society where everybody can do something. Uh, you know, when we first started teaching this undergraduate class at Georgetown, you know, we had some naysayers were like, oh, what can undergraduate students do? We're getting ready to teach our fourth semester, uh, and we have lawyers throughout the country who are saying, can you help us? Uh, we tell people there's always something somebody can do, whether it is web development, reaching out to politicians, uh, trying to help raise money. Uh, selling products, educating people, helping organize rallies or events. You know, if we don't get involved, we can't complain. And so often we hear people who are a little bit jaded about the system or unclear about the system until they're directly impacted. And the minute they're directly impacted, you, all of a sudden you hear, oh my God, I didn't know it was that bad. And for us, what I say is it is that bad. And we are here to make a difference and try to educate people on what can be done to change the system and make sure it's not that bad anymore. Mm -hmm. Marty, thank you so much for taking over an hour of your busy schedule to speak with me. I could talk to you for days on end. Um, so we, we should do another episode about exonerees and post-release adjustment because it, to me, it's something that I'm very passionate about. And I think people just don't understand uh, you know, what the whole reintegration process is like for an exoneree. Um, it's challenging. And I think if people understood it, uh, they'd probably be a little more receptive. Awesome, Marty. Well, thank you so, so much. Thank you again. I'm definitely going to take you up on that offer. Stay tuned for my follow-up with Marty. We have links to all the organizations Marty mentioned on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. Y'all, if you like this show, please consider joining our Patreon. It shows us how much you care and helps us continue to tell these stories. Plus, you get some awesome bonuses. Also, please rate and review. The more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessnetwork.com. 